today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, Prime Minister is in Ottawa. As we mentioned, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario are meeting, and, uh, well, just about anybody who's anybody is there, both federal, provincial, and, of course, all municipalities from the province of Ontario. Uh, but he was actually at a specific event yesterday. It was the uh, the groundbreaking for the new Amazon uh, facility that's going to be built in Ottawa. That's a great news story. But uh, there's a Q&A, as uh, a lot of world leaders do, and prime ministers, apparently not all the premiers, like Doug Ford, uh, actually have Q&As with the media. But he did yesterday, and they didn't want to talk about Amazon. They didn't even want to talk so much about what happened with the heckler. But they did want to talk about NAFTA. We look forward to re-engaging at the NAFTA uh, table, negotiating table, very shortly. Uh, we have uh, many uh, concrete uh, and creative uh, ideas about how we can move forward on a win-win-win for our three countries. Uh, we remain diligent and focused on uh, getting the right deal for Canadians and indeed for our partners as well. Well, that may be a little more difficult than uh, the Prime Minister has anticipated uh, because word out of Washington today is that the U.S. and Mexico are very close to signing off on their part of a, of a deal, uh, and at which case they're going to turn to the north and simply strong-arm Canada and say, here's the deal, take it or leave it. Uh, there's going to be very little in the negotiations. Now, that's the word out of Washington. Apparently, they're going to play some hardball here, and especially if they've got Mexico on side already, the pressure will be on Canada to simply acquiesce and say, okay, we'll sign whatever it's going to be. Will we? And what kind of pressure tactics will they actually try to do in reverse because they have pushed back in the past? Let's talk to Barry Kay about this, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, specializing in Canada and U.S. politics. Barry, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Kind of sounds like the play is on here right now to, to, to put all the pressure on Canada. Well, yeah, that's the optics of it. Um, I, <clears throat> we should clarify that this is all speculation at the moment. Sure, yeah. There may, be, in fact, be something, uh, something real to it. Um, <clears throat> from the reports we're hearing, and indeed, I'm not sure... To what extent they're accurate? They're probably certainly Canada has not been participating in the the latest round of negotiations, um, but that in many ways it's the the Mexicans that have had more differences with the U.S., particularly with regard to the auto sector. Uh, the, the the story coming out that was in the Post was that in fact um, the a way they're going instead of suggesting that the determination on on auto imports into North America is going to be based not just on country of origin but on the pay rate of auto workers. Um, of the country in origin. And what that effectively means is the pay rates between Canada and the U.S. are pretty similar, whereas Mexico was the, Mexico has given up to a certain degree on that. I gather in part they're getting, um, they're, they're getting a deal with regard to some of their agricultural products going to states, which don't affect us so much. Um, look, with, in general, I, again, I'm, to a certain extent, I guess I'm talking through my hat at the moment because we really don't know what, what's on the table. Uh, Canada's going to have to give up something. The something probably is going to be in the area of, um, uh, uh, you know, of, of the um, uh, man- management of, of product, the, uh, the, the things we talk about in terms of the, the marketing boards, particularly in yeah, the area of Supply dairy. management, that, that seems to be a real sticking point for them. Yeah, I, I, I've thought all along, it, Trump needs to be able to, to claim victory. Frequently he claims victory for much less than what he wanted. The Americans have already backed down on a number of other things that they wanted. A lot of the things they wanted were totally unreasonable, including the fact that they were going to want to set up an arrangement that we'd be renegotiating this, not just now, but every five years. Um, so when we talk about uh, the pressure on Canada, and there will be pressure on Canada, but there's pressure on the states too. Uh, Americans aren't particularly happy. Americans, at least in the agricultural sector, there aren't particularly happy with the fact that uh, the, the the tariff threat has had Im- 
in the short term, a lot of serious impact on many of the products that are going not just to Canada, but particularly to China and to Europe and elsewhere. Uh, soybeans to China is huge, as an example. Now, that's not something that affects us so much because we don't import soybeans. But um, when, when I say, there's yes, there's pressure on Canada, but um, America's coming up to an election in a little over two months, and indeed farmers aren't particularly happy. And Trump wants to be able to claim some kind of victory on all of this. We should also remember that NAFTA was, in fact, an expansion of something that had preceded it. NAFTA involved Mexico and Canada, but before that there was a free trade agreement negotiated back in the, uh, the, the 80s uh, during the Mulroney government that was just called the free trade agreement. Mm-hmm. If NAFTA blew up, in theory, Canada would still have that arrangement. And in fact, if that arrangement blew up, there would still be the WTO, the, the World Trade Organization rules. Um, I, so I, I, don't, I don't want to deny that there isn't pressure on Canada. There is. But in different ways, there's pressure on a lot of other countries uh, that are involved with this as well. Yes, the Americans clearly have more economic muscle than we do, and they will always have more economic muscle. And that's why I suggest that in, in some ways, Canada is going to make some, have to have, make some sort of gesture. And it looks like dairy, um, the, the dairy supply management is probably the area they're most interested in, in going after. They already actually send more dairy goods to Canada than we send there. But there are different aspects of this, um, and that's something that Trump is particularly focused on. So, uh, again, it's a long way of saying I'm not sure exactly what's coming down. Yes, there is pressure on Canada, but we're not the only ones that are under a certain amount of leverage from other, other sources. I don't want to suggest the Americans are under exactly the same as we are. But, but Trump has an election uh, that he's worried about in terms of how the agricultural sector is affected there. We don't have an election for another year. The uh, the big three, though, Barry, that we've heard about, and, and your point's well taken. I mean, we don't know specifically because uh, none of the the negotiating teams are being very specific about what gets discussed behind closed doors. So we, we, we are left to speculation. But I think there's a general consensus that the big three is one, as you mentioned, supply management. Uh, the other is intellectual properties. And the third one is dispute resolution. And now, as you saw in the story in the Post, and this was uh, from gleam from some of the folks that were uh, speaking in hush whispers in Washington, I guess, is, is the other one is about the dispute resolution, uh, which is a sticking point. I mean, obviously, there was a, a dispute resolution. You mentioned the World Trade Organization as, as a, an arbiter in some sense. The, the U.S. is suggesting, no, we'll look after it. If there's a trade dispute, it'll go before U.S. courts and we'll decide whether we're right or wrong. Uh, I, I can't see Canada giving into a situation like that. Uh, I agree. I agree, and that's why I'm not sure what else is on the table. I do agree with the fact that Canada's going to have to make some sort of gesture, and I thought that with regard to, to the, the dairy marketing boards uh, that they might pull in their horns a bit on that. Uh, there are a few other little things that they could do, too, including the fact right now when Canadians bring goods into, can- into the country from the States, they have higher, greater limits on them than Americans do taking Canadian goods I- I- in that direction. That's something that I think could be given up easily as a token victory for, uh, for the Americans. Uh, so, yes, I think America Canada has to give up something. Um, I would guess that the dairy supply management is the prime area that we'd be talking about. I think that the dispute and negotiating mechanism is not something that Canada is going to be particularly quick to, uh, to agree to, if that's what's really on the table. Now, the real fear is, as important as all those sectors are, uh, they are dwarfed by the auto industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in, in Ontario, uh, the auto industry is king, whether people realize it or not. That's like wheat in Saskatchewan and oil in Alberta. Um, and indeed, I'm hoping that at least with regard to that, that in fact we are not going to be expected to have to make any, any significant sacrifices. Uh, but, we'll, you know, time will tell. We'll, I, I'm just not sure exactly what, in fact, um, is on the table. 
um, I'm not surprised by the fact that we'll be expected to give in something. I think the uh, the dispute mechanism would be something that uh, the Trudeau would be very reluctant to go along with. I'm always quizzed about this whole thing, Bear, and I wanted to get your read on this. Why, so far anyway, it appears that Canada has been so adamant about supply management because in in previous deals that they've negotiated with the European trade deal and and with the Trans Pacific Partnership, the revised TPP. Uh, they've given in on supply management. They haven't tossed it out, but I mean, they've they've modified it. Uh, I, I wouldn't think that it would be that much more difficult to do that with the U.S. markets. And I think that's probably what will happen at the end. Uh, with regard to those other deals, um, they've, they've given in as much as they've had to. Um, it, you know, Canada's not unique in the fact that the agricultural sector has disproportionate influence with regard to protectionism. Uh, Japan, it's huge, but it's true in a lot of other uh, a lot of other countries as well. The agricultural sector is something that, um, in terms of protectionist policies that created the higher tariffs to protect uh, domestic uh, domestic production, the agricultural sector it's not unique to Canada. Uh, is something that um, many governments are particularly sensitive to with regard, I guess, to their uh, political clout, even though. Fewer and fewer Canadian voters are in the agricultural sector each decade than the than the decade before. But yes, that's been true. I think it's something that we're going to be compromising on. It's not just Canada where that's the case. The other element to this too is uh, is when they did uh, negotiate the European deal, and and uh, I know that especially Quebec dairy farmers were very upset about some of the uh, the, the negotiations that went on there vis-a-vis cheese export exports, etc. Uh, the government was quite honest in saying, "Look, at what we're still going to subsidize. It's just going to be a different program altogether." So uh, you know this idea that well, if the supply management goes out the window, that farmers are going to be left high and dry, I don't think is totally accurate. You'd like to think that there's going to be some sort of a, a plan B for them. Um, I agree. I agree. I'm not sure. Um, well, again, we're, we don't even know what we're talking about exactly. We just heard these these speculative reports. Um, I don't think it'll totally go out the window, but in fact, my it sounds like that's the sector that's going to be treated a little less generously as a result of the change. And what all this is about is so that Trump can claim that he's his um, bar, you know his negotiating prowess is such that he's made a great deal for the Americans. A lot of it is BS, but nonetheless, this is the way he operates. We've seen it with regard to North Korea, where I think he got his pocket picked, but he was claiming that as a great victory. We've seen it with regard to uh, you know some of the issues with regard to his uh, his wall, which he hasn't gotten at all in the states. But he's claimed that just being able to refund negoti- um, repairs to the wall that preexisted is a victory as well. Trump will claim victories where they are otherwise seem to be invisible. I think that's what's going to happen ultimately if, in fact, there is some sort of agreement on this. That's not to say there won't be something given to the Americans. I think there will be. I'm hoping it's not too disastrous for our economy. There's, there's two elements about the auto sector that I guess are raising a lot of concerns. Now, one is, as you mentioned, that it could actually be on the table as a heavy negotiating tool. The other is it could be used as leverage, and Trump's already talked about that. Look, look at if I don't get Canada to sign on like this, I'm going to start with the, the tariffs in the auto sector. Now, that's uh, I know most economists say that's akin to throwing a hand grenade in the middle of the room with both parties in there. I mean, it's going to hurt both, but it's going to hurt Canada a lot. It's a scare tactic. Look, even with regard to, to steel and aluminum, um, he suggested this was because of national security interests, which it wasn't at all. But nonetheless, that was the justification he had to be able to use, because that's the only way the American president can, on the basis of national security, alter trade agreements without having to get the approval of Congress. So again, he sort of changes the rules of the game as he goes along, depending upon how it works. Um, we'll, we'll see. I, again, I'm, frankly, I'm hopeful that this will get behind us. Look, the Americans right now, uh, part of what makes Canada, uh, what makes Canadians perhaps a little more sanguine about all this, is that he's gone to a uh, war on trade with everybody. If it was just North America that he was concerned about, I think we'd be in more, in more trouble. 
uh, what he's doing with the Chinese is much heavier duty, and even with the Europeans, than it is with us. I think he's trying, if in fact these rumors are true, he probably wants to get the North American side of it off the table so that he can then focus on the much more serious and much more economically significant uh, elements of the trade conflict with China and others. And, and what we're hearing from, I guess, we're, you know, with the, what we're trying to do here is conflate a couple of uh, information sources, and I'd use that term. One is Lighthizer, of course, who's the chief negotiator, uh, and, and he's speaking, as you say, in very vague terms. The other are the tweets from Trump, and, and uh, I don't know if we can take any of that to the bank as legitimate. Look, uh, I can't. I don't. I no longer take anything seriously that he says. He says one thing one hour, something else the next. Frequently, um, that's not to say that he is not a protectionist. He is. That's that's one of his views. But um, in terms of claiming a good deal or claiming that he's going to uh, use fire and fury, um, I, I can't take anything he says too seriously for an extended period of time because it's all nego- It's all tactics. It's all negotiating. Uh, in terms of bluff and bluster and bullying, that's what he, he hopes to be able to see to, to accomplish. That's why the threats to Canada at the moment, even though we can't ignore them entirely, I don't take them too literally either. So th- this, at this point then, uh, if, if a deal with Mexico is imminent, uh, do we wait for the phone to ring or do we get a hold of Washington? Uh, do we send Christy Freeland down there? What's Canada's next move? Oh, they, the, look, I, they're not being made public. I have a hunch that they have some sort of back-channeling with the Mexicans to find out at least a little bit of what's going on. I don't think they're, they're, they're totally in the dark about all of this. We are in the dark, other than the fact that in the general terms that there's something, there's something cooking. I, I have a hunch the Canadians are getting ready because it's a smart play to sort of uh, develop scenarios of how to deal with the situation should there, in fact, be uh, disagreement between the, the Mexicans and the, uh, the Americans. The, um, from the report that was in the paper, the Mexicans are giving up something, but the Americans are dropping some of their demands as well. I have a hunch that will be it at the end of the day for us, too. We will make some, you know, some concessions. Um, as we've just been talking about, the, the dairy sector seems to be the most obvious uh, area for this. I'm hoping that it's not going to involve the trade dispute mechanism because that means it would be our negotiating leverage would be totally out of our hands. And in the past, deals on softwood and other things have, have the, the fact we've been a, able to um, to come out okay at the end has largely been a result of that that particular um, facet. If uh, if the dispute mechanism is a concession that the Canadians make, I think that will be serious. And in fact, I think that will make Trudeau vulnerable to conservative charges. But we'll see. I, I'm I'm hoping it's not going to be. That, 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 that will be the main concession at the end of the day. Barry Kay from uh, Wilfrid Laurie. And Barry, thanks as always. Great talking with you today. Bye-bye now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a lot of eyebrows raised when uh, Premier Doug Ford announced uh, not too long after he got elected that he was uh, going to reduce the size of Toronto City Council. That was not one of his campaign promises, by the way. Nothing that he had talked about during the campaign. And it caught a lot of people off guard. Uh, especially because, well, of a word called process, which is something that's supposed to mean something, I guess, when it comes to politics. And uh, Toronto City Councilors, of course, pushed back. A number of people in the community pushed back and said that what Ford did was undemocratic. Uh, Mayor John Tory was uh, one of those that was expressing his displeasure. I send to the people of Toronto the same message I've sent since the first day that we learned about this, which is that uh, this process uh, was uh, unacceptable. It was... uh, wrong in the context of changing the rules in the middle of an election campaign Um, and we try to uh, suggest that uh, some form of public consultation including a referendum would be uh, 
would, would make a contribution to making uh, such a decision more legitimate. Uh, the government uh, pushed the legislation through using every tool they had to get it done quickly. So now we're left with the next thing that we have been working on continuously since then. Which is to vote, which they did yesterday, to, uh, to further legal action and, and try to stop this bill on a number of different levels. Uh, will they be successful? Uh, will they be able to turn this around? And is there any legitimacy to their claims that uh, that this is uh, this is a, a rush to judgment to get this done? Let's bring Christo Avalis into the uh, conversation. Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow, of course, at History at the University of Toronto. Christo, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. There's so many different levels to approach this, and uh, I mentioned this in my my commentary at eight ten this morning here on CHML, and 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 I think. Uh, in listening to what some of the counselors are saying and some of those that seem to be incensed by this, uh, I think there's, there's almost a, a, an admission that, okay, it's not what he did, it's how he did it and why he did it that seems to have a lot of people upset. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, if you, and, if, and I think that will be a key aspect of the legal challenge because, in general, there's an understanding that, you know, there's the, the cities, towns, municipalities broadly defined exist kind of at the pleasure of the provinces themselves. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, um, Ford can kind of do what he wants. And this goes back to the amalgamation and how, you know, Premier, Premier Harris kind of did that, even though there was, you know, a lot of opposition to it. You know, the Premier can do kind of what he wants. But the idea here is that, um, you know, doing it during an election, people had already registered for positions to run. You know, him targeting one city, perhaps, for a specific, um, you know, reduction in the council size when other, ta- other communities, from very small communities to other large cities, have more councillors per citizen. You know, it, it strikes one as arbitrary and, you know, against, the, in, in my view, the broad principles of Canadian democracy. And that's where a court challenge might have some grounds, because at the end of the day, you know, the provinces can say, look, we have the power to do what we will with municipalities. But with every legal decision in our country, it has to pass the broad context of is it, you know, acceptable in a democratic society? And, and judges do have leeway in, in how they interpret these decisions. You know, um, it's not an, an autocracy. So I think the context of how it was done is why people are angry or a big part of it. But but also could be a key vein in this legal challenge. Well, and and your point's well taken. For those that maybe don't understand the the, the structure, uh, I mean, the city of Toronto exists because of something that the government of Ontario passed called the City of Toronto Act, uh, which basically gives them their charter. We have one here in Hamilton, of course, and they could withdraw it. By the way, I don't know that it's ever happened historically, Christo. But but I mean, you know, you're right. We 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 exist at the pleasure of the province of Ontario. As does every other community in the city, this province. So we understand that. But to your point, even when when Mike Harris imposed amalgamation, and, and Toronto sadly was the first city that he did that to as well, uh, there there still was some consultation. I mean, there still it wasn't just done. Hey, I'm I'm bringing this down. Uh, you know whether they listened to the, what the people had to say, but at least there was a process that was put in place, as there was when we went through the process here in Hamilton, uh, as they did in Chatham Kent, and as they did in Sudbury. Uh, on up in the Ottawa area, they, they, there was public consultation. There was a chance for people to weigh in on that, and and you may not have agreed with the final decision, but at least you thought, well, I had a, a, a place in the process. That didn't happen here. No, I think that's a key point. I think you know everything from there was no mandate sought. Again, noting here that 
in Ford's particular case, whereas amalgamation, as you noted, it may have started in Toronto, but it affected numerous communities across Ontario. Ford has actually said in this case he doesn't plan to, and, and maybe he's being sincere, I mean, who knows, but he says he doesn't plan to do this to any other city council. I mean, it, it, it offers, again, this sense that it, it's an arbitrary move without a mandate politically uh, and without, um, um, you know, uh, sign- uh, you know, meaningful consultation either of the existing elected officials or as you know the you know the citizens uh, of toronto that will be affected that will in a sense um have less representation uh at municipal levels which you know a lot of municipal politics aren't sexy but you know so many of the most important things in your day-to-day life are municipal more than say they're federal or even provincial so you know uh, this could have a significant impact on Toronto, and Toronto is a, a fast-growing city. This 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 issue will become even more intensified as the city continues to grow. I mean, if we were going to, you know, try to preserve a kind of understanding of how many um, MP or how many you know uh, councillors we would need given a population, you know, the discussion would be Toronto growing the size of its city council, not cutting it in half. And again, you know, I think Ford is trying to play a, a political issue here because he knows that across Ontario. A lot of small towns voted for him. And if the logic was consistent, then, you know, many of those towns would have councils of one or two or three people uh, uh, to, to keep, you know, consistency. Yet those councils kind of keep their integrity because Ford doesn't want to interfere in the democratic processes of communities that voted for him. And, and I think that it doesn't pass the political smell test. Maybe it won't pass the legal one either. Well, and that's what's got a lot of people asking questions. And it's funny you should mention about that, that dichotomy, really, between small urban centers and larger urban centers here in the province of Ontario. And, and that's in evidence. That, well, this week, I mean, uh, you know, the Premier just addressed the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, the AMO conference, uh, and uh, got great response from the smaller uh, representatives from small-town Ontario, not so much from the big cities. Not unlike what Mike Harris got back in the mid-1990s when he imposed... Uh, the downloading process uh, here in the province of Ontario. That was great news for small towns because they had very little social service costs anyway. They didn't care. But places like Hamilton, Toronto, Windsor, and Ottawa got slaughtered by this. And I, I can still remember watching the Premier at that time address the AMO conference. And the uh, the people from the big cities were sitting on their hands with this glum look on their face, and everybody else was cheering them wildly. And I guess same sort of thing with Premier Ford. There there are two different constituencies there, and, and I guess the, the key to success here is knowing how to play to both of them. No, certainly. I think that's that's a big part of it. And in our system, again, we have a we have a very peculiar system where, you know, you don't need to even have half the people like you. You can be like Ford, you know, more unpopular with the majority of the population or at least a plurality of it, and still have absolute power. You know, the reality is that that's the first past the post system, and and you given where ridings were located and Ford's strengths being in kind of suburban and and, and rural Ontario, a lot of these smaller municipalities. Are, are part of Team Ford. You know, the difference with the other system is we can talk about, you know, uh, uh, whether a given tax cut or service transfer is better for small or medium or big towns and have that political debate. But here is an actual interference in democracy. And one would hope that smaller towns, whether or not their democracy is being, you know, interfered with, that they would kind of stand in, in solidarity with Toronto. Because really, you know, Ford didn't run on this. And should he choose... Hamilton or Kingston or, or, you know, Chatham or even, you know, Smith Falls and other small communities could be next. And, and if this core challenge goes 
you know, in Mr. Ford's direction, he'll have the precedent to make these wild changes um, with with very little in the way of stopping them. So, so there's that partially answers it anyway. Uh, how he did this, uh, which begs the question, why? And and this is one of the things that's a head scratcher for an awful lot of people here, Christo, is is when he initially made the announcement. Uh, he said because when he was on city council in Toronto, he found the council to be dysfunctional, uh, and and wanted to do something about that. If it, when, uh, which I find rather odd. Uh, this is a guy that only served one term on Toronto City Council. He had the worst attendance record of all the councillors, of all 48 councillors. So I, I, I don't know how he drew, drew that conclusion that it was dysfunctional. And, and anybody who was watching City Council, and we talked about it a lot uh, at that time, uh, if there, were, there was any dysfunctionality, a lot of it was probably because of some of the antics of himself and, and, and Mayor Rob Ford uh, and not the other councillors. So some people are now saying, look at. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any political basis for this. There doesn't seem to be any logistical logistic basis for this. Is this just personal? Is this just a payback for the enemies that he's made on Toronto City Council? That is that is a very popular narrative that you know the enemies at the council, the the fact that he ran for mayor unsuccessfully, the fact that you know he's tried to argue at times that Toronto voted for him over the NDP. It's actually not true. The NDP won the broader city of Toronto. So the, maybe it's a revenge against the city for voting for, for picking Horwath over him. I mean, I'm not sure. That's, that's conjecture. We have no proof. The other argument, which I actually maybe find more convincing, uh, there's two, is one, by, by shrinking the ward size, you effectively lower the ability of each councillor to have key oversight on issues. And one of the biggest issues in Toronto is developer issues. And there's a sense that if councillors are less able to, uh, you know, have oversight on issues of development, it could make for a more pro-developer, um, you know, kind of environment, which is, you know, more pro-business, less, you know, you know, and that could be something that Ford and his cabinet want. There's also a suggestion that's come from Giorgio Mamaliti, one of Ford's bigger, biggest supporters on, on the Toronto Council, that this will mean less leftist city councillors, and that's a good thing. Uh, there's an argument that you know, this this merger will help balance out the kind of right versus left on the council. And it could also be the case that, you know, whereas, um, you know, with, with smaller wards, different people could run, marginalized people, lower income people, people running on smaller budgets, because you have less land to cover, you have less resources to print, and all of that. With bigger wards, effectively, you funnel in, you know, more candidates who fit the dominant, you know, racial and gender hierarchy, and also people with more money, and those will tend to be people who would support Ford. So it could be, you know, an open act of political engineering, which is, yes, at this time only affecting Toronto, but could have wider consequences for the, the political process in terms of the province playing politics with who gets to be elected on city council by affecting, you know, ward boundaries and whatnot. But, but what also feeds this narrative that this is, this is personal and not professional at all uh, is the fact that outside of what he did at Toronto City Council, there were two other moves that, that uh, caught a lot of people off guard, is he eliminated the positions of regional chair in two different regions in the GTA. Uh, and is, is it more than coincidence that two of his political rivals, Steve Del Duca, the former transportation minister, and Patrick Brown, we all remember Patrick Brown, uh, were two people that were running and were probably as front runners for those jobs. And Ford just kind of said, those jobs don't exist anymore. Poof, you guys can't get elected. Yeah, no, I, 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 I certainly see that one, just from my personal perspective, as more personal 
than the general city council. I, I personally see the city council change as tactical and ideolog- ideological. It's not gerrymandering because the districts will be shaped as the provincial and federal yeah, districts yeah. are. But it's but it's gerrymandering in the sense that they feel that they'll have a more advantageous city council to you know anti labor, anti you know home like anti land like you know renter, anti working class people ideology, and they'll have a more business friendly ideology with that council. Now with the regional chairs, I mean, I think that one, that was an easier political decision to make because it's a new thing. So you're kind of getting rid of something before it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit easier to do. But also, I, I agree that with, with Brown, you know, as long as he's there, it's almost a reminder of, of the controversies of the past PC leadership. And although Ford wasn't a part of that, um, Brown will be a constant reminder uh, of that, and Brown is a constant reminder, in a sense, of a more moderate, you know, Tory party that 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 he might want to get rid of. And Del Duca, as you know, a, a you know a prominent liberal minister under the previous government, uh, he probably doesn't want to empower uh, an opponent in that sense by basically creating what is a you know a sub mayoral position in a sense. What about the t- the timing of this though? And that's, that's what Mayor Tory was addressing in the comment that we played just before you jumped on with us here, Christo. Is that look at if you want to do this, you know that, that's one thing to say. Okay, six eight months before an election, this is the way it's going to be. But this is weeks before the election. Yeah, no. I Nominations had already closed. Yeah, yeah no, no, hundred percent. I think in general, and even the Toronto Act says that, that that changes like this are supposed to happen, you know, well in advance. And I think there's an understanding in our democratic process that you have to give people enough time to work within the game uh, and, and understand the rules and how to play them. So, for instance. It, it, there's a difference between, let's say, in an alternate universe, Justin Trudeau kept his promise on electoral reform. He would, one, have a mandate to do it because he ran on the issue. And then, two, he might have implemented it starting in 2015 or 2016 in consultation with Elections Canada. And they would have had enough time to implement a new system uh, and educate Canadians on the value and, and how that system works. In this case, you have a government that's newly elected, interfering in the democratic processes of another jurisdiction without a mandate to do so, not during an election in the sense that, you know, the writ has been dropped in, in a sense that, you know, we're not in the formal election period, but we were definitely in the period where candidates were officially registering and all of that was kind of starting. Again, the context is very important here. If Ford was to say, look, even if he didn't run on it, but he was to say, look, I've decided we're going to cut City Council of Toronto in half starting in 2022. We're not going to do it now because the election started. I want to get consultation on exactly how this is going to work, but I'm just letting everybody know in 2022, we're cutting it. And I think that would be, one, much more palatable to some people, but two, probably more legally tolerable because, as you said, with with Harris and the amalgamation, there already is a precedent for major changes coming down on the province or coming down from the province to the cities, but but they can't really be immediate, and they can't really be without consultation. Exactly. Christo, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Thank you, thank you for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, Premier Doug Ford addressed uh, the gathering there and uh, assured them, by the way, that he uh, had no intention of tearing apart any other local governments like he did to Toronto and uh, downsizing them. Uh, That's very magnanimous of him. Uh, Later on, uh, opposition leader Andrea Horvath, who of course is leader of the Ontario NDP, also addressed the AMO conference. She joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about uh, the events going on there. Andrea, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. 
Hey, it's my pleasure, Bill. I know that uh, that Premier Ford's uh, attempt to downsize Toronto Council was uh, the topic of conversation uh, and probably the buzz in the hall as it was in so many other uh, municipalities uh, saying who's next. Uh, you addressed that in your comments to the to the AMO delegates, didn't you? I did. In fact, uh, I was able to speak first uh, yesterday, which was a uh, an honor, and uh, put out in my uh, formal remarks uh, a commitment to bring legislation forward. Uh, of course, private members' bills, which we've talked about before, uh, often don't get the support of government, but uh, but we will be putting a bill forward uh, that um, that shows that you can do things differently. Uh, and what we would, uh, what we commit to, and what we uh, are are saying to government, whether it's this government or a, a future government, uh, is that if there are going to be changes at at the municipal level, uh, we have to do that in a respectful way. So my private members' bill is going to include uh, making sure that any uh, changes come with uh, complete and full transparent co- um, consultation with uh, with community with the people that know their communities best uh, as well as having a final vote uh, by the municipality affected uh, you know the way this was done was completely undemocratic uh, and it was more about uh, mr. Ford's personal vendettas against uh, you know folks in Toronto uh, against what he disparagingly calls progressive councillors uh, but guess what Councillors are, are put there by the people of, of the community, as you know, having been a councillor yourself and as I know, uh, and, and we have to respect the people's right to their democracy and to their, uh, to their uh, you know, ability to, uh, uh, to make those decisions, so not only in terms of who they elect, uh, but in terms of uh, how their local governance uh, is structured. I, I was amazed by that because I heard that comment from the Premier yesterday, and here, here he is basically denigrating uh, those who he used the phrase progressives, uh, and this, of course, is the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. But I guess I guess we're not supposed to see the the, the irony in that. Uh, but but I mean, we've been down this road, as I mentioned earlier in the program, Andrea, and, and as you have obviously uh, with things like amalgamation. And, and yeah, that was imposed on us too. But even in that case, as, as draconian as that may have been seemed to an awful lot of people. There was still a process. There was still public was. consultation. Now they may not have listened to it, but at least they went through the motions. Uh, this is this is precedent setting to simply arbitrarily say I'm doing this to that city. Yeah, it is precedent setting, and it, it, it sends a bit of a chill down the spine when you when you look at what he's done and and realize that it's it's really more about his uh, you know his attempt to. Um, uh, to get back at uh, people that he's not um, been, you know, friendly with in the past. I mean, this is not what a premier should be doing. Uh, it's not about your own, uh, you know, your own uh, personal dislikes. It's not about who you believe should or shouldn't be elected. It's called a democracy. I mean, I can see this kind of move in 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 countries that are struggling to find their path to democracy. Do you know what I mean? People uh, people who are looking towards going from a uh, you know a, a, an undemocratic uh, you know arrangement in terms of governance to a democracy. But in a mature uh, you know democratic uh, uh, you know place like Ontario, like Canada, to have a, a premier uh, behave in this way, it, it really is chilling. It, it's it's very worrisome because it's not only, you know, trying to make sure that uh, he can control Toronto uh, from the Premier's chair uh, and, you know, trying to uh, uh, kneecap those uh, Toronto councillors that he didn't agree with when he and his brother were at the uh, City of Toronto, but also uh, it's taking away people's right to vote for their regional chair, right? I mean, we finally moved most of the provinces forward in terms of this election, uh, rather the uh, communities forward, the regions forward, with this election moving to regional chair elections in Peace 
Peel and in, in York and in Muskoka and in Niagara. And, uh, and the other thing that, his, uh, that this premier has done now is that those people in those regions are not allowed uh, to, for the first time, vote for their regional chair. Instead, it's going to be decided in a back room uh, amongst the councillors, which is, again, uh, not a very democratic way to, uh, to choose representation. I haven't talked to you for a few weeks, and uh, maybe just give us a minute or two, Andrea, your read on, on that summer session of the legislature, the first session, and uh, some of the things that were enacted and talked about. Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's worrisome. There is uh, definitely a move by this government to drag Ontario backwards, uh, and whether that's uh, the sex ed education, uh, the sex education curriculum, uh, whether that's uh, you know you know the, the the signal that this premier sent that if you're if you're somebody who he owes a favor to, uh, or somebody who is um, connected to him in some way, uh, you can cut a backroom deal, and that's how he's going to govern. So whether it's the the, the far right radical social conservatives like um, like Charles McVitie uh, or Tanya uh, Granick-Allen, or whether it's, um, whether it's uh, you know, the big polluters that are now not, now they're off the hook uh, when it comes to cap and trade, uh, or whether, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, folks who have been ad, um, agitating against safe injection sites. Again, the conservative, uh, the very, very far conservative, right conservative uh, base that Mr. Ford wants to, um, wants to please. I mean, these things drag our, prov- our province backwards. Three hundred and thirty million dollars uh, in um, in uh, you know cuts to mental health uh, services when we know that's got to be one of the most important areas where where we've been crying for investment where we've been you know begging for investment for years and years now and he's cutting that by three hundred and thirty million dollars you know the loss of, of funding for uh, uh, for um, you know projects that are being funded through the uh, uh, through the uh, the green on and uh, and other programs through the cap and trade. I mean that's a loss to school boards of a hundred million dollars in investments. I know that's going to impact Hamilton as well. Um, you know the social housing uh, in, in retrofits that were supposed to be happening again. That's going to affect Hamilton and so many other municipalities. I mean this th- it really was a, a government that uh, was governing by um, you know by favors to friends and 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 backroom deals being cut uh, and and really hurting uh, everyday people the social assistance cuts the, the cuts to the increase in in social assistance and the the, the, the callous uh, cancellation of the basic uh, income pilot project. Of course, you know, in our community, that's going to affect many, many people. Uh, and it's uh, and again, why would why would they cut that? Because they don't really want to know uh, the information. They don't want to know the facts. They don't want to do the study. Uh, in fact, it was this government that you recall the last time they were in office. Not only did they force the amalgamation on on communities, but they also cut back social assistance rates by almost twenty three percent. And we've never recovered from that. The the depth of Poverty has uh, has continued to increase. Um, same with the download of social housing. Uh, we're hearing about that here at AMO as well. I mean, uh, the the loss of that investment in, in some of the retrofits to social housing units makes a big difference for these communities. Well, what are you hearing? Because I know that uh, I've attended some of these conferences, obviously, as as you have over the years. And and uh, part of your job, obviously, is to is to talk as you did yesterday to the delegates, but it's also to listen. Uh, and not just to the folks from your own constituency, obviously, but for, from uh, from representatives from right across the province. Social housing is always going to be a key issue. Uh, in past years, it's been about transportation, both local and uh, interprovincial, intercity transportation. What are, what are they telling you? What are the delegates telling you? Well, I mean, they're they're. Uh, I mean, the people are um, cautious. They're they're cautious. They're they're a little bit nervous, uh, but they uh, uh, they want to you know give the government a, a chance. Uh, but they're worried. I mean, when when we see uh, the promises of um, 
of a reduction of uh, in gas in gas prices that's going to impact um, you know the the transportation funding that municipalities receive from the gas tax, and so uh, so there people are worried. They're worried about projects that were you know suddenly uh, approved by the previous government right before the election was called, and so they're concerned that some of those commitments are not going to be fulfilled. Um, but they're at the same time they're they're taking a wait and see approach. Uh, but um, but certainly infrastructure and transportation infrastructure and health care uh, are are big on people's agenda and and seniors' uh, support services as well. But, you know, and you've heard the explanation from the government on this. is look, they just won the election. They won a huge mandate, so they have a mandate to do what this. This is their agenda. They had the, This is what they're carrying out. Well, you know, again, I mean, they, they, what they didn't have is a fully costed uh, transparent platform. And so they're very, uh, it's very convenient for them now to, uh, to break promises, uh, although they are saying that they're keeping their promises. For example, uh, they made some pretty big promises around uh, mental health. And, uh, and while they still say, oh, well, we're still going to invest in mental health, they are taking $330 million annually, Bill, annually out of uh, mental health funding that was put in the budget by, uh, by the, the previous government. So, uh, so again, uh, they're conveniently talking about the promises they've, uh, they've made, uh, but, uh, but what they're not talking about is the, the damage they're doing to everyday families. And, and, and you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a, a sad thing to watch that a government uh, that took over the province at a time when people were extremely concerned and still are uh, about the erosion in our health care system and our ability to get the health care uh, that we need when we need it and where we need it didn't really do much when it came to their first little session in the legislature except for cut uh, in health care uh, and, and and that's going to hurt families and and cut cut uh, uh, the kind of um, uh, the programming the new education curriculum that's going to help students for example uh, to uh, to stay safe uh, to protect themselves against cyberbullying uh, to uh, to know what uh, consent means and how to protect themselves from sexual assault I mean these are things that um, that are going to hurt uh, uh, not help uh, uh, young people and not help families and not help everyday people. Andrea Horvath, opposition leader, of course, and uh, leader of the Ontario NDP, uh, speaking to us from the AMO conference. Andrea, thanks as always. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, Bill. Take care. Thank you. You too. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.